0: Well, thanks for joining me again, Gary Zacharias with The Apologist Bookshelf. I'm going back to the complete Bible answer book, which is by Hank Hanegraaff, and it's actually a collection taken from two of his previous books, the Bible answer book and then the Bible answer book, volume two. So this has uh, a lot of it together. It's got 172, I think. Let me look it up. Yeah, 172 answers to questions dealing with topics like religions and cults and basic spiritual thought and what God is like and Old Testament issues, New Testament issues, the historical Jesus, uh, apologetics, um, spiritual warfare, Christianity and science, and it goes on and it goes on. So I've covered it before, and I'm going to pick out another few chapters. They're very short, and uh, so it makes for easy reading, and it's just tremendously uh, helpful to get you started. Of course, they're not in depth, and you could continue if you wanted to into other books, but just giving a good once-over. So here's a question. Is apologetics really necessary? And uh, he says, you know, for a lot of people, they picture apologetics as uh, somebody with a tweed jacket and smoking a pipe, you know, some older scholar or theologian. He says, that's not true. He said, it's basic training for every Christian. He says, and that means you. It's not a ne- nicety, he says, it's a necessity for every believer. And he gives of course that famous verse in first Peter about always be prepared to give an answer. that's apologia to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And he says, Paul in many places in the New Testament vigorously defended the gospel and he told Timothy and Titus to do the same. Uh, that's second Timothy 2 Timothy 2 23 to 26 chapter 4 verses 2 to 5. And Titus 1, 9 to 14. And he says, you know, the other reason you need apologetics is to preserve the faith. The church has to defend itself against outside objections, but they have to people have to guard against false teachings from within. Now is that going on today? Oh, yes, exactly. So Paul, for example, tells Timothy to preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct? rebuke and encourage, he says, with a lot of patience. He said, because the time's going to come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. They're going to turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Yes, exactly. Unfortunately, that's Second Timothy 4. So Hanagraf says, defending essential Christian doctrine against pseudo-Christian cults is a crucial task of the Christian apologist. Do we have a lot of pseudo-Christian cults these days? Yes, Uh, I've been going through uh, with a fellow teacher in our apologetics class, just some of the different religions and some of these new religions that have come along, and they are pseudo-Christian. They they tread on Christian terminology, and they wrap themselves in Christian things, but they're not. And uh, we need to know. We need to be wise. And he says, finally, apologetics is necessary for the church to be culturally relevant. And he says, we're living in a post-Christian society, and belief in a God or miracles that people say, oh, that's just superstition. And he said apologetics creates intellectual room for the acceptance of the gospel. And I really like the way he puts that. I'm going to say that one again. Apologetics creates intellectual room for the acceptance of the gospel. In other words, Christians are not stupid. It's not dumb to believe in a God. It's not a wishful thinking to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You can make a strong, hearty, rugged intellectual set of arguments for all of these things and at the end of the chapter here it's very short just two pages he always puts something in here about for further study and he gives some really good references that people could go to other resources like jp moreland's book love your god with all your mind that's a good one Um, hank hanegraaff has uh, his own books that he's um, noting here as well okay so that's one right? That's, uh, what's the point of apologetics? Do we really need to do that these days? Here's another one right next door to it. Can a person be argued into the kingdom of God? And Handegraff says, you know, that's a common mistake that Christians make. They, they feel like, well, I'm not sure I want to get into apologetics. Sounds like you're, you're arguing people into the kingdom of God, and that doesn't seem right. But it says, no matter how eloquent you are or may not be, you can't change anyone else's heart. It's just the Holy Spirit. So, if I'm ever talking to a group and I'm talking about the importance of apologetics, I always like to bring that up. It's not us. We're not the ones that are going to change people. We're not going to bring them into the kingdom. That's up to the Holy Spirit, which actually is wonderful because it takes a lot of pressure off of us. If we do a poor job with our arguing or we throw out an incorrect uh, assumption or we make a fact, uh, lay a fact out there that's wrong, God can use that anyway. So the pressure's not on us. It's up to the Holy Spirit. Our job is to be faithful. That's what Greg Kokel always says. Put a stone in their shoe. Just be faithful. And then the Hanegraaff goes on. He says, you know, the problem is not that people can't believe. In other words, it's not intellectual uh, problems that they have. It says that they will not believe. So it's the will, not the mind. In other words, it's often not a matter of the mind, but a matter of the will. And I think he's exactly right. Uh, Hannah points out that the Christian faith is reasonable, but reason alone does not compel a person to embrace Christ. So we can have the best arguments in the world, and we could have, have spent months and months preparing these arguments, and then we give them, and somebody just shakes their head and walks away. We shouldn't be crushed, because oftentimes it's not the head, it's the heart that is resistant to the gospel. People don't want to bow the knee. And then Hanegraaff ends this whole chapter by saying he's convinced that if we're prepared to give an answer, like Peter asked uh, us to do, God is going to bring into our paths those whose hearts he's prepared. That makes sense, doesn't it? So other people may have talked to individuals that come our way, and we add one more uh, layer of doubt or confusion, maybe, or whatever it is, and make them think about what they believe in, maybe down the way somebody else Brings them to a saving knowledge of Christ. So we're just to be faithful. That's it. Says uh, at the end, his final comment, it's our responsibility to prepare ourselves to be the most effective tools in the hands of Almighty God. That's all we are. We're the tool. And then at the end, he recommends the book by William Lane Craig called Reasonable Faith. And that is a good book. A little harder to read, but a really good book. All right, let's keep going. I'm just digging in the section here dealing with apologetics. Here's a question. What are the most important, significant, apologetic issues? In other words, if you wanted to get good at apologetics, what would be the areas that you should concentrate on? He said, first, it's the issue of origins. If you think you're just a function of random processes, you're going to live your life by a completely different standard than if you thought you were created in the image of God and accountable to him. And he makes a pointer. I don't think you can argue with this. He said, more consequences for society hinge on this issue than on any other. And I would heartily agree. Where do we come from? How can we argue? And I mean argue in a good way. But how can we argue for the origins that we are from God? We'd have to argue for the existence of God, wouldn't we? And we can do that. We have a lot of good arguments we can make. Okay, so that's one significant apologetics issue. What's our origin, the issue of origin? Secondly, he said, it must be to to prepare ourselves to defend the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Sure, I mean, if you don't buy into that, Christianity is absolutely useless. He says, it's not just that the resurrection is important to the historic Christian faith. There would be no Christianity it's the one doctrine that elevates Christianity above any other world religion. Christ demonstrates by that that he's not one more like Abraham or Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad. He's utterly unique. He not only laid down his life, he took it up again. And uh, Hanegraaff quotes from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. You're just wasting time. You're just, this is nothing but a uh, social gathering then. It's just kind of a nice club like Elks or Kiwanis or Rotary. We just get around and talk to each other and have a good time. But it, it doesn't do anything as far as our fear of death or what happens to us after we die. Okay, one more thing he says in this chapter. He says, finally, we have to be equipped to demonstrate that the Bible is divine rather than just human in origin. So there are his three things. We ought, we ought to be able to d- deal with and struggle with the issue of origins. Secondly, defend the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. And now, third is that the Bible is divine. So finally, he says, his third point is that we have to be able to demonstrate that the Bible is divine rather than just merely human. And that's uh, hugely important. He said, you know, if the Bible is just human in origin, it's just one more holy book. But if we can demonstrate that the Old and the New Testaments are divine in origin, then they are the authority that would govern our lives. At the end of the chapter, he mentions something interesting here, too. Uh, I won't spend the time on it because that's a big deal. But Handigraph is really good at coming up with acronyms for things to believe. And I don't know if that helps you. I, I need a lot of memory tricks. And the older I get, the more tricks I need here to remember things. But, for example, he goes after evolution by doing F-A-C-E. Notice, what's the problem with evolution? F is for fossil record. A is for the ape-men fictions. C is for chance. E is for empirical science. And then for the resurrection, he's got a way to memorize that. F-E-A-T, feet. F is for the fatal torment. In other words, Jesus really did die. E, for the empty tomb. A, for the appearances of Christ after his death. How do you account for that? And T is for the transformation in the apostles, so F-E-A-T. And then he gets around finally to what he's been talking about in this chapter, and that's the Bible. Why do we trust the Bible? That's Remember he said that we have to prove that it's divine, or at least suggest that it's divine. He said you can use M-A-P-S, maps. M for manuscripts, A for archaeology, P for prophecy, and S for statistics. And that takes us right into the next chapter, Little uh, part of the book here is How Do We Know the Bible Is Divine? So he takes that MAP, he doesn't deal with S, but he takes MAP. So first, M manuscript. He said the Bible's got more manuscript support than any other work of classical history, and that includes Homer and Plato and Aristotle and Caesar and Tacitus. And he says the Bible has been virtually unaltered since the original writing. And that's because uh, scholars have taken a look. They've found the earliest manuscripts, and then they compare that with manuscripts written centuries later. It's the same. And the reliability of the Bible is affirmed by the testimony of authors. They were eyewitnesses or close associates of eyewitnesses to these events. And even uh, secular historians have confirmed many of the events and the people and the places and the customs that are in the Bible. So that's M, manuscript evidence. For the Bible's uh, origin, a divine origin. A for archaeology. He said that's a great witness to the accuracy. Uh, They've found so many things lately. Uh, Pontius Pilate has been mentioned. The one who ordered Christ's crucifixion. The bone box of Caiaphas. The high priest who presided over the religious trials of uh, Jesus. So they keep finding more and more evidence from archaeology. So there's the M. There's the A. And how about P? He says, well tremendous amount of predictive quality to the Bible. Now he just gives one example, obviously he can't go over it all, but he says let's take the book of Daniel that was written before 530 B.C. The book accurately predicts all these kingdoms coming from Babylon through the media, the Persian Empire, um, uh, the the persecution the Jews suffered under Antiochus, Epiphanes, and um, Finally, freedom of the Jews under Judas Maccabeus in 165 B.C. So he said, how would all of these specific detailed prophecies come about through chance? Uh, That's not going to happen. And the book that he recommends at that point is Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. He thinks that's really worthwhile, too. So that's, uh, do I have time to do maybe, how about one more, and I'll keep this one short. I love these little chapters. It's easy to dip in and out of them as much as you want here. Um, He's got a chapter here, I think it's really important, Is religion, the root of evil. He said, we're hearing this over and over again, that religion is the root cause of all these great atrocities. But he points out, and this is just the one thing you can take away without all the details, more people died because of secularist ideologies in the last century than have died in all of the religiously motivated conflicts of Western history. So he gives examples. The Nazi philosophy. Uh, that killed off millions of people, and of course, especially Jews. Now, uh, Hitler was not a Christian. I, I had a student in one of my classes tell me that he was, and I gave him all sorts of support later to show that he was not. In fact, Hitler said this, I shall never come to terms with the Christian lie, and our epoch will certainly see the end of the disease of Christianity. Well, okay, so that's Hitler, a secularist society, How about going beyond that? Who killed more people? Communism, Marx, Uh, Mao Zedong's communist dictatorship of China, it's estimated they killed 65 million of their own people. How about Stalin? How'd he do in Russia? Uh, 20 to 30 million dead. He slaughtered plenty of people there. Then you can add in the Cambodians, Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge, and on and on and on. It's just a horror beyond comprehension of all of these ideologies. After all, if there's no God, you're not accountable if you're a leader of this country. There's nobody you're accountable to. You can do whatever you want. And unfortunately, because we're all twisted, broken people, if you give us enough power, we're going to do some awful things to each other. And at the end of the chapter, he says, if you couple this with the recognition of all of the wonderful things that religions have done, especially Christianity, all humanitarian aid efforts and all. It says uh, the secularist should kind of quiet down a little bit and have a little humble introspection rather than putting down religion. His books that he mentions at the end, he said, uh, take a look at Oz Guinness's book, Unspeakable. That's wonderful. I've got that one. That's a really good one. In fact, I'm not sure I've done a blog on that. I'll have to do that. So this, again, is the Complete Bible Answer Book by Hank Hanegraaff. I highly recommend it. And uh, thank you for tuning in. And we'll do another podcast soon. Bye bye.